The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. Nonetheless, we're going to continue today, uh, right where we left off. And this is the, the eighth week, you know, we've been in the book of Revelation. And we're going to continue in that today. Book of Revelation, we'll start in chapter 11. Uh, and I hope this has been uh, enjoyable as well as, you know, knowledgeable. And yes. That type of thing. So, and, yeah. And, and as I mentioned on some occasion, you know, we're, it's taking a while, and yet I'm still going through this rather quickly, right? So I'm sort of hitting some highlights and giving, uh, trying to give you a framework, you, the church, and of course, our friends who join us online, trying to give everyone a framework to work with for the book of Revelation. Um, so in your own life, and just for the general knowledge and unity and understanding of this church, we can kind of, you know what I'm saying, kind of have a same page uh, type of thing. And it's good to teach some of these things. And I get so many questions about eschatology and this type of understanding. Um, it's just good to throw some of it out there and give us some understanding and put us on the same page and that type of thing. And again, uh, and, and maybe as time goes on, I will share some more quotes here, but uh, I am not, and this is readily abundant now, but just for the sake of whoever, uh, just reminders of these types of things. Of course, I am not a futurist. I am not a dispensationalist. Uh, so dispensationalism and I cannot stress this enough, dispensationalism or dispensational eschatology is uh, less than 200-year-old doctrine, all right? Uh, and you can go home and Google this or come talk to me or whatever, but this idea that church history, that human history, is made up of seven distinct so-called dispensations and that um, so many of the things that spin off of that um, that is a less than 200-year-old teaching. Biblically, God is, is not functioned through seven distinct dispensations. God works through covenants. God is a covenant God. And so biblically, there are five major covenants that God established between himself and mankind. The first covenant God established was with Noah. All right? Then, after that, Abram slash Abraham, then Moses, then David, and then Jesus. So biblically, five major covenants between God, Noah, Abram, Moses, David, Jesus. All right? And so um, I guess if you understand it, it's not a big deal. But sometimes you hear this thing that we're in the so-called age of grace or the church age but that it's temporary, there is no scriptural basis for that. We're not in the temporary church age. We're in the eternal new covenant, which is a covenant of grace, don't misunderstand me. But it's not some temporary, this idea that we're in this temporary period where God's nice because Jesus was and anybody's in a good mood, get really ticked off again and come back and slaughter a few billion people that is so absurdly inaccurate and unbiblical and contrary to everything Jesus reveals about God that it's just untrue, 
All right? And this whole idea is a less than 200-year-old thing, all right? Uh, I subscribe to what is known as preterism, which that word scares people, because I think because it sounds like predator. I don't know. It's just like <laughs> one of those words. And people go to church. They don't want to think. They want to be entertained, which I detest that whole thing, by the way. Uh, you probably figured that one out. We don't entertain. We slap you upside the head with about 4,000 scriptures a week. And, you know, say so enjoy, you know. So, nonetheless, um, preterist just means past. It's from the Latin praetor. And at the beginning of pre, preterist, you have pre, as in pre, as in previous. So it just means past fulfillment. And most of church history subscribed to a past fulfillment of these eschatological or last things events. And I don't have, I could pull them up, but I just, I'm not going to take the time to do it right now. Um, but I could, you know, you could go all the way back to the early church, the very beginning of the church fathers. Uh, you could go to Eusebius in the 300s, the very first church historian. You can go uh, to Origen, one of the first church fathers who lived in the second century. You could go to uh, much more recent times, anyone from Martin Luther. All the Puritan American reformers. You could go to Charles Spurgeon in the mid and late 1800s. All these people who you can find their quotes where they believe and subscribe to a past fulfillment. All right? Um, the church has never had a full blown uniformity of eschatology, but there's, there was a general. So, in other words, everyone throughout church history has not agreed on every little distinctive. But the overarching idea that it, that at least most of this stuff was fulfilled in the past, revolving around the destruction of the old covenant mosaic system or mosaic age, whatever you want to call it, the old covenant mosaic world of law and temple, and understood that much of scripture, prophetic eschatological scripture, was fulfilled uh, in the first century concerning these things when the temple was destroyed. Okay, so there's that. <laughs> uh, that's review, but sometimes it helps to remind and re-throw out terminologies and just keep these things fresh and that type of thing. And I'm not one of these pastors and pictures. You know, I don't demand that anyone agrees with me. It's sort of like, you know, one of the news stations. We report, you decide, right? But if nothing else, hopefully we can give you some things to consider, to think about, and... Um, Maybe remove some fear. And, you know, the gospel is good news, and that should encompass the whole gospel. So we should have some good news in our eschatology as well, in our worldview, right? And so there are some very real problems and issues in the world, and there always have been. Uh, but there's also some very real good things, uh, some very real and good answers. I mean, we live in many ways, uh, we, we see. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. You know, I mean, there's bad things, but there are good things. Mm -hmm. My God, we live in a time where you can turn on the air and freeze the ladies out and cool off. It's incredible. Most of human history couldn't do that. I mean, it's just, you know what I mean? We can turn the lights on. Right, Kathy? Hallelujah. So we can turn the lights on. Hallelujah. Let there be light, baby. Uh, you know, you got in your car this morning. You didn't have to load up the horse and buggy, man. 
You know what I'm saying? And like you, you had roads to drive on and not a dirt path, and uh, presumably. And I mean, it's just, we just, it's crazy. I mean, you know what I mean? We have screens and we can put these scriptures and lyrics and all these types of things. You've got a flipping computer in your pocket or purse, most of you, right now. It's insane. It's just baffling the times that we live in. And um, again, there are very real problems, but. I tell you, there are very real answers and good things right in front of our faces if we would just be. You don't even have to be a Christian to realize how much good we're surrounded by, you know? And so, anyways, uh, that was my second introduction, I guess. I'm going to try to get to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, here. <clears throat> And then we're just going to start verse 1. And, and please understand, this is so pertinent. That eschatology or uh, the understanding of the doctrine of last things, this isn't some like add-on that doesn't really matter. If eschatology doesn't matter, then half of it has to do with study of last things. And, you know, throw out 1 Thessalonians, throw out all of it, throw out all of 2 Thessalonians, <laughs> Throw out Hebrews because it's eschatological. Throw out half of the Old Covenant prophets. You wouldn't have much of a Bible left if we threw out everything that pertained to these things, you know. And so it's extremely important. It's not a second-hand issue. Eschatology is the completion of God's redemptive plan for humanity. I mean, that's the just a great way to understand it. It's the completion of God's Redemptive plan for humanity. And it answers so many questions, too. Oh. Um, stay in Revelation, but look up here. Let me show you something. Because Jesus, you know, of course, on the cross, uh, Jesus said, it is finished. Amen. And, but the question, you know, so what was finished? <laughs> A certain part of it. So that, the, what do I mean by that? So Jesus, well, he still had to resurrect. The Holy Spirit still had to be poured out. So there were other church, you know, it was 10 years after the day of Pentecost, approximately, that they finally, God finally got food, you know, that salvation was also for the swine-eating Gentiles and not just the Jews. Acts chapter 10. And then, so yes, that part of redemption was absolutely, sin was taken away at that point. It is finished. But he still had to resurrect to give us righteousness. So the shedding of blood brought our forgiveness. But then there's the three days. And St. Peter tells us when he preached to the souls that were in prison in, upon his descent after his death. So he still had to do that. He still had to resurrect. You understand what I'm saying? He still had to breathe on his disciples and get the gift of eternal life back into the earth. Still had to pour out the Holy Spirit. Uh, so there was... Other things that weren't finished, but that much was finished. So you understand what I'm saying? So eschatology is the completion of God's redemptive plan. And then there's multiple scriptures, but I'll just use this one here. Um, things start clicking and coming together, and uh, questions start being answered, uh, like this verse behind me here, Hebrews 8:13, when he said, "A new covenant." He, he made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. 
a verse like that, you think, well, wait a minute. He, you know, as of the cross, the resurrection, and, and then really the day of Pentecost, the law is, as far as God's concerned, is he's not honoring that system anymore. There's a new covenant. There's a new system. There's a new age. So why does it say here, book of Hebrews, written around 67-ish A.D., why, you know, 37 years after the cross, does he say the old covenant is growing old and ready to disappear? So if we don't understand the magnitude and the importance of what happened in 70 AD at the destruction of the temple, that doesn't make sense. It's been growing old for 2,000 years and ready to disappear? For, no. That's, that he, was talking to, he was literally talking to Hebrews at that time. And scripture, this is a good old thing to remember, scripture always means first and foremost what it meant to the intended audience. Now, there are truths we can extrapolate from that, but first and foremost, it needs to mean what it meant to whom it was spoken, written, said, etc., right? So he's telling them right here, 67 AD, right in, the, just right in the middle of really the beginning part of the destruction, when the Romans came in and destroyed, uh, start destroying the, the, the old covenant world, if you will, he tells them this. And there's lots of other scriptures we can look at. That Colossians 2 has some scriptures where he talks about the same thing. But, um, look at, let me show you this scripture. Hebrews 10, just page or two over, you know. Um, notice this, Hebrews 10, 37. Once again, this is 2,000 years ago. The author of Hebrews writing something to literal living people at that time. What's he saying? And really, he's quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2 here. That, uh, he says, for yet in a very little while. Some of your translations might say in a little while. In the Greek, it's, it's, I think it's the word mellow. And it literally, it's <coughs> very emphatic. It's a, you can even translate it in a very, very little while. So it's very strong in the Greek. In a very little while, he who is coming will come, look at this, and will not delay. Well, if that's 2,000 years off into the future, a yet future coming, then he did delay by 2,000 plus years so far. But if it was written to them, and if it was fulfilled in just makes natural, logical sense. You don't have to stretch it. You don't have to twist it. You don't have to do gaps and gimmicks and all this type of stuff, you know? Uh, even in Matthew 24, and I'm not turning there, Jesus said at near the end of the chapter in the Olivet Discourse, he said, the wicked servant says, my master delays his coming. Yeah, very right? And so we don't want to be in that block, do we? No. Are we getting anywhere this morning, or am I just yes. preaching yeah. to myself? Okay, now... Moving on. <clears throat> Finally, to Revelation 11. Check this out. Verse 1. He says, There was given to me, John, of course, he says, There was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar 
and those who worship in it. Uh, sorry, verse 2. Then he says this, Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations or some of your translations to the Gentiles. Now notice this. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for how long? 42 months. Otherwise known as three and a half years. So uh, it's, it's worth noting there is not a single, and I know I've heard these points, and I, but it's so worth it. There's not a single scripture anywhere that says there's a seven-year great tribulation. Now, I, I can't help how popular that teaching has been for the last 200 years. I can't help that. All I can help is what scripture does definitely say. And here we see 42 months. And notice it doesn't say 42 months now and then another 42 months in another section. It's only the 42 months, the three and a half years. All right, now check this out. I want to show you a couple of things here. Uh, Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to look at a few other places here. Gospel of Luke. And then chapter 21. Verse 20. Luke 21, 20. Jesus says, again here, talking to the disciples, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation which is, of course, destruction, is near. Then, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter to the city because, verse 22, these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Do you guys remember, and we'll read a couple more here. Do you guys remember in Luke chapter 4, it says Jesus stood up in the synagogue and the, the scroll of Isaiah was brought to him. And then he says, uh, from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. You know, preach the gospel to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, open the blind, eyes of the blind, blah, blah, blah. eyes of the blind, we'll get it. Uh, the poor will have the gospel preached to them. And then Jesus says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. He's quoting from Isaiah 61, but Jesus left the last thing off in Isaiah 61, because in uh, Isaiah 61, after he says the acceptable year of the Lord, uh, he goes on to say, and to proclaim the vengeance of our God. So Jesus left that off in Luke chapter 4, quoting from Isaiah 61. Well, I think here is he's, he picked that clause back up and puts it in its proper time frame because he says, these are the days of vengeance. Mm -hmm. You know, this is Luke's gospel, all right? And it would just take a lot of time to make note of that. Luke chapter 4, 
Jesus stands up in the temple. Scroll of Isaiah is brought to him. Uh, reads from Isaiah 61. He quotes everything that's there except the pages of But he picks it up here and he says, These are the days of the vengeance. All right? So, in which, uh, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Now, notice this, verse 23. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Next verse. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive into the next, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And of course, we read there in uh, Revelation 11, what did he say? He said, measure the inner parts of the temple, but leave the outer courts. Don't measure that, because that's left to the Gentiles, the Roman armies, and they will trample and tread it underfoot. All right? So we see that right there. Jesus is bumping up this also, Book of Daniel, where so much of our eschatology comes from. <clears throat> Book of Daniel, chapter 12. And then, um, all chapters were good. But, uh, da, da, da. Look at verse 7. Let's just start there. Look at verse 6. Let's start there. He said, and, and of course, there's an angel here talking to him. But he says, And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, he said, hey, how long will it be until these wonders? And he's talking about the resurrection and books and book of life and all this stuff. Verse 7. He said, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left towards heaven, which is like oath. That's like swearing an oath, essentially. Lifted his right and left hand towards heaven, and he swore. See, here's your swearing, your oath. You know, He swore by him who lives forever that it would be for time, times, in half a time. Don't really have time to time, no pun intended, to develop this, but everyone that I've ever come across, whether they're a preterist or a futurist, everyone understands and agrees that this is three and a half year time frame. And that goes back, you can see some of this in Daniel 7, of course you see it in other places, uh, but he says here, time, times, and half a time. Uh, and notice this though, he says, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, Daniel's people, multiple places in the book of Daniel, he says to Daniel, your people. Well, who is Daniel's people? The Jewish people, all right? So he says, then these events will be completed. As for me, I heard, but I could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the time of the end, which is the better translation. Uh, the time of the end. Then he says this. Now, by the way, though, notice here the books are sealed and closed up, but when you get to Revelation, the books are open and unsealed. All right? Mm -hmm. 
because the time was at hand, which Jesus says at the very beginning of Revelation chapter 1, the time is near, the time is at hand, right? He says, many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will none will understand the wicked, uh, the wicked will, I can't talk today, none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. Look here, from the time that the, verse 11, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation, I, I know I'm the most repetitive guy on the planet, but what's desolation mean? Destruction. From the time that the abomination of destruction is set up, there will be 1290 days, which is how long? Three and a half years, 42 months. Revelation 11. What's he say to John? Measure the temple, but with the outer courts, don't mess with that because that will be the time of the Gentiles, which is three and a half years. And then same thing here. He says from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, which was mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, uh, he says, and the abomination of destruction is set up, it will be three and a half years, 42 months, 1,290 days. So that's uh, when the Romans came in and uh, don't have time. We'll get into last week. I shared some historical quotes from Josephus. We'll hopefully look at some more in the future. Uh, when the Romans came in, in other words, right in the middle of 66 AD, right? Um, next verse, I guess. He says, How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. And we won't get into the right now. That's not a particularly big deal. That just had to do with. Uh, sort of a wrapping up of one of the, because the battle went on uh, until about 73 AD, but it took them three and a half years from the beginning, the 42 months from when the invasion began till the destruction of the temple. All right, and so this has to do with one of the uh, battles that was there, and you know, some, some, a few of the people they didn't kill all the Jews; they killed over a million of them, but they did take. Uh, some 60 to 90,000, I think it was closer to 90,000, as slaves. Not the least of whom was Josephus, the historian, Jewish priest, historian who lived and gave us so much extra information about this. He says, Daniel, but as for you, go your way till the end, because then, at the end of the 42 months, you will enter, you will enter rest, and then at the end, in other words, you will rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. All right, now, that was... A lot of stuff, but let's go back to Revelation. But it's beautiful how you start seeing these things weave together, isn't it? And so you see scripture upon scripture, three and a half years, three and a half years, three and a half years, right? And so these mystical, cryptic, dark things start making sense. It's uh, it's incredibly, it just wouldn't make sense that God would give us these inspired sayings the purpose of us not understanding them. You know, that's silly. Now, once again, Revelation 11. Check this out. Leave out the port which is outside the temple. Don't measure. It's been given to the nations. Tread underfoot. 42 months. Okay, the Holy City, 42 months. Now, verse 3. And this is, you know, again, a very beloved, speculative portion of Scripture here. He says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth 
So here, here comes, you know, your key witnesses. But notice what he says here. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now before we keep reading here, and you can turn there if you want, let me just show you something from the book of Zechariah. I'm having to look for stuff. I, I butchered my uh, stuff here today. I don't have everything in front of me that I need. I may not even know Zechariah anymore. But I'm, uh, chapter 4. I'll just have to turn it I will have to say I call it Zechariah chapter 4. Check this out. Uh, verse 11. It says, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? Verse 12. And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive trees, uh, branches, which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the golden oil from themselves, so he answered me, saying, Do you not know what these things are? And I said, No, my Lord. Verse 14, he said, Then he said, Are the two anointed ones standing before the Lord of the whole earth? So clearly you can see where John's getting this from, right? The two witnesses. Zechariah, you see here, uh, he's asking this question, Who are these? And he says, These are the two anointed ones that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. And then that's what you see right here in Revelation 11. These two olive trees uh, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Verse 5. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Look at verse 6. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. Now what's this start to put you in mind of? Fire falling out and consuming people? Who is that? California. <laughs> <laughs> that was a heck of a guess, guy. <laughs> what about Elijah? And then what about shutting up the powers of the heavens so that it can't rain? Who's that? Elijah. First Kings chapter 17. Right? The first time of Elijah is mentioned when he's contending with Ahab and Jezebel. Before King Ahab, and he says, it, it will not rain except at my word. And somebody tell me how long it did not rain for. Three and a half years. All right? And this, of course, is on the, the heels of this three and a half years or this 42 months in Revelation 11. All right? Um, then he says, it will not uh, power to shut up the sky. Rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth. Simply the land of Israel uh, to strike the land with every plague as often as they desire. 
And of course, you know, we do get into lots of stuff about is it Moses, is it Elijah, is it uh, whoever. Uh, I personally think he's just talking about the law here because this was the end of, of the prophets, the old covenant prophets, when they would prophesy the final end of the nation, the Jewish people who rejected their Because according to the law, the book of Deuteronomy, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And here you have two witnesses. It's the law system and the judgment that come upon them for not keeping their end of the covenant agreement. You guys remember uh, whenever Jesus and Barabbas, you know, and there's, you know, they turn someone loose and pardon them, and, you know, who do you want? And they give us Barabbas. And then what did they say? They said, because he said, I, you know, I, I washed my hands of this, his blood fell on my hands. The, the Jewish leadership and the people said, let his blood be upon us. Well, it was. And then Jesus told them in Matthew 23, the blood of all the righteous from the very beginning up until even the time then of uh, the end of Matthew 23, uh, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you slaughtered between the altars. He said, all of that's going to come upon this generation. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 said that, Jordan paraphrase translation, he said, I compare this generation to that of Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than for you. Why? Because they were committing the greatest sin of all, rejecting and murdering their own Messiah who came to save them. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, Moses said that the Lord Yahweh will raise up a prophet like unto me, and whoever doesn't receive him will be destroyed. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know what I mean? So the, the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment here of the law system was destruction. And Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the law is what? The ministry of death and condemnation. And it reached its ultimate fulfillment when the very system itself, if you will, died in 70 AD. All right? And then we see some of these things here, these prophetic uh, curses from the law system. Water turned to blood, um, which spoke of, we read some things from Josephus last week of how the, the water was turned to blood because of the, the Romans killing the Jews. He says, when, verse 7, when they finish their testimony, now notice this, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, and overcome them and kill them. So what's that mean? These two witnesses, which I submit and hold to that this is just the law, but every word is established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. That's the law system, in other words. The beast rises up and even kills kills the witnesses here. And this is speak, we'll keep reading here and you'll see it play out. But he's starting to speak of how the, the Romans come in and destroy that system, right? Now keep reading. And it's a problem in modern Western thinking to over-literalize some of these things. We've, we've talked about that some, um, but hopefully you can see the book of Revelation is a book of symbols not meant to be over-literalized. All right? And we don't have time to get into all of that. But look here. He says, Their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is spiritually or mystically called 
Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So even in this verse, we see he's clearly speaking symbolically, because Jesus was not crucified. But what he's saying here is that Jerusalem, God's covenant people have become so corrupt and so vile and so wicked and so evil, they were comparable to Jesus, again, Matthew 11, even compared them to Sodom, but said they were worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, those from the peoples and tribes and uh, tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their bodies to be laid in the tomb. Those who dwell on the land will rejoice over them and celebrate. They will send gifts to one another because these two prophets who tormented those who dwell on the land but after three and a half days, the breath, of, uh, the breath of life from God came into them. They stood on their feet. Fear fell upon those watching them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. They went into, uh, up into heaven into the cloud, and their enemies watched them. In that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Let me just stop here very quickly and say, I think what he's speaking of, and again, Jesus himself, you understand, is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, right? So even on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking to these guys. He blocks them from being, he kind of blocks them for a momentary you know, time there from being able to understand who he is. And it says that he took them from Moses through the Psalms and through all the prophets and showed them you talking about a Bible study. I wish I could have been at. Holy shnikey, Batman. That must have been ridiculous incredible. It says he showed Jesus himself teaching off every type of shadow. You know, you spend a lifetime learning these things. And here's Jesus breaking it all down, man, in a relatively short amount of time. Anyways, uh, and it says that he showed them from Moses and the Psalms and all from the prophets, all the things that were concerning him. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of, you understand what I'm saying? The law system. And so uh, the law system was fulfilled in the death of Jesus. All right? And so, of course, in his resurrection, that's still the fulfillment of his, the messianic prophecies concerning him. Um, verse uh, 14, he says, The second woe is past, the third woe is coming quickly. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces in worship, saying, We give thanks, O Lord, God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you've taken your great power and uh, have begun to reign. The nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants and prophets, the saints and those who fear your name, the small and great, and uh, to destroy the land. Then he says this, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of fire, a great earthquake, and a hailstorm. Um, things, I, I suppose we could speculate this. We know for sure that there was a there's a heavenly temple 
Because when Moses is on the mountain, the scripture tells us in multiple places, God showed him the pattern how to make the earthly tabernacle based on the heavenly tabernacle. And we know that Jesus took his blood into the heavenly holy of holies. And so we understand some of these things. And then you, right, we sort of get a snippet of that, I think, right from the heavenly perspective of what's happening. The temple of God, which is in heaven, was open. The ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. I mean, what does, you know what I mean? I, does that mean the literal ark that's in heaven? Well, it might. At the same time, I think, if, you know, Jesus is technically the ark of the covenant. And so upon the ascension, the ark, Jesus, who is the ark, appeared in the heavenly tabernacle. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, that's speculation. But Jesus is the ark. What's the top of the ark? The mercy seat. First John 2 says Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, not only ours, but the whole world. In the Greek Septuagint, which is simply the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Bible that Jesus himself used, that same word for propitiation, that same Greek word, is the same word for mercy seat. So he does say Jesus is the mercy seat for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the whole world. And so a lot of speculation and good thought, you know, I wouldn't, at the moment, you know, just put my stake in the ground over one interpretation here, but uh, lots of wonderful things. Let's look just a few more minutes here and at least begin Revelation 12. Lots of good stuff here. Hallelujah. So, I, you know, I just personally think that uh, these two witnesses, I, I don't see any historical evidence, most likely, that it was two literal people and anything like that. I just think it's the law of the prophets, which speaks of everything from water to blood, uh, which I think it was fulfilled and how many of the Jews were killed and the waters were literally turned to blood because of that. Uh, the, the heaven shut up. That gets into uh, 1 Kings 17 and Ahab and Elijah, the prophetic judgment on the wicked king, uh, the wicked leadership of Israel, and the leadership of Israel in, in this time in the first century was extremely violent and wicked. So I think we see a lot of those things here. Uh, nonetheless, Revelation 12, 1. says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with a child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, heads was Let me start here from verse 1 saying, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman was clothed with sun, moon, and stars, and we know that script, throughout scripture, of course, we know that's Israel. So he says here, clothed with the sun. The moon under her feet, her head, a crown of 12 stars of the 12 tribes of Israel. But notice this, she was with child. Well, this is the fact that the Messiah was birthed through Israel. You understand that? All right. So she was with child, being in labor and in pain to give birth. So Israel, through the old covenant system, God worked through them to, to bring forth and to birth the Messiah. You understand that? Okay. 
It says, and another sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, on his heads were seven diadems. Um, Speaking here of Rome. Rome, okay? Now, Rome, what's this, what is Rome to this day called? Uh, the city on. Some, somebody yelled out again. I heard multiple other hills. Seven hills. The city on seven hills. All right? Now, seven heads and ten horns. It was on seven hills, but at this time, and you can look it up, Rome was broken up into ten different provinces. All right? So here you have the, the Roman system, in other words, and Satan working through upon, Eric, you want to say it, the Roman system. All right? Now, what's it say here? And his tail, that's the dragon, swept away a third of the stars of heaven. Now, this is so often used as the fall of the angels, as it doesn't have a thing in the world to do with the fall of the angels in, in uh, previous human history. All right? I believe some angels fell, but that's not what this verse is remotely talking about. It's about a third of Israel. All right? So his tail swept away a third of these stars because he just said two verses earlier, the sun, the moon, and the stars. So it's in that context, so it's natural Israel. All right? His tail, Rome, in other words, swept away a third of the stars. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gives, gave birth, he might devour the child. Now we know that even from the very announcement of Jesus, this king who was going to be born, he was, uh, his life was in jeopardy, in other words. So he was, from the very birth, you know, uh, a natural king who operated under the authority of Rome, trying to kill this king baby. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the dragon stood before the woman who's about to give birth, so that when she gives birth, he might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And I love it because in Hebrews it says his scepter is a scepter of righteousness. Woo! And that speaks of God's righteousness given to us. Jesus is unrelenting and unflinching. He has an iron fist. He refuses to, to relent from the reality that in his gospel he has given us the gift of righteousness. Amen. All right? Amen. With the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God to his throne. So he's kind of skipping some time here. The ascension with the next verse. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Now, we know, again, and this is another thing we really learned from Josephus, but we know from Josephus that over a million of the Jews, that's the unbelieving Jews, were killed during the Roman siege. All right? But according to Josephus, there's no record that even a single Christian was killed during this time because they believed Jesus' warning, which we read a little while ago in Luke 21, but he said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee unto the mountains. 
Right here we see the believing part of the woman, the, the Jewish remnant who believed on the Messiah at this time. It says they fled into the wilderness. We know that most of the Christians, when they saw it surrounded, they fled into a place called Mount Pelah. So they fled into the wilderness up into a mountainous town region or Mount Pelah. And so we see this being spoken of prophetically right here. And it's very interesting because in the book of Joshua, when the children of Israel came into the promised land, they had to cross in, they had to come across the Jordan River. And boy, there's some incredible stuff that happened there. The priests took the ark, they had to stand in the middle of the water, and the water stopped, and then uh, back, like just God supernaturally, the water made a wall, and it just stopped, and then the rest of the water ran out. And so the priests had to stand there waiting on these millions of Jewish people to cross. Uh, the promised land, you know, the land flowing with milk and honey. And there's, some, you know, there's some incredible imagery there. You know, Jesus, who is the ark, only Jesus takes us into the promised land of heaven. You know, Moses, Joshua chapter 1, the Lord told Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua, Yeshua, is a type of Jesus. Moses led the, the, the old people of God out of bondage, but only Yeshua can take you into the promised land. And we see all that typology there. It's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, but nonetheless, here in the first century, when the believing Christians fled Jerusalem, Judea, the Holy Land, and went to Mount Pella, they had to cross back. They had to come across the Jordan River. So you see sort of a prophetic typology you see what I'm saying? Uh, you know, they, they had to leave the way they come in. And so very interesting there. Nonetheless, it says the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. And so there she would be nourished, once again, for 1,260 days. So we see the three and a half years there. And what a time it was. I encourage all of you that can, and you know, whatever, uh, just get on Google and just put Josephus, uh, Wars of the Jews, and just skim some highlights of the things that happened here. Get on YouTube and watch a 30-minute long documentary on it. and you It's just incredible, the, the things that uh, Josephus... He has the literal signs in the heavens that were happening for, for over a year. And, uh, I think it was last week, two, uh, one or, I think it was one of the quotes from last week we read from Josephus. He even said that it was so fanciful and outlandish that had there not been multiple witnesses, no one would dare to ever believe the things that happened. But for a year, there was uh, something, you know, in the shape of a sword over the very temple of Jerusalem in the heavens. In other words, leading up to uh, before the Romans actually came in. But a sign. There were voices that could be heard from the temple. Let us flee from hence. Let us flee from the Holy of Holies. Let us flee from hence. There's crazy things. I mean, just on and on. There were so many. There's, they brought a calf in one time, and it gave uh, uh, birth to a, what was it? Mm. Uh, yeah, it was, what, how did it work? It was a, whatever, it was like a, you know, a dog giving birth to a cat, whatever it was. I, you know, it was something bizarre, but, you know, there were so many prophetic things that started happening, letting them know. And you can get all this from Josephus, and you'll start seeing, you can see these things happening. Josephus speak to these signs in the heavens. And then you start seeing, uh, even in the scriptures here, these things being said. Nonetheless, I'm trying to wrap up here. Verse 7. 
angels uh, waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. There's no place found for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, who deceived the world, was thrown down to the land, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard, so Satan's working through this system. He tried to get the, the child born of the woman, but he couldn't succeed. In other words, you could have looked at it from a natural perspective. Herod feels threatened because there's the announcement of another king that's going to be born. But if we could pull back the curtain and see the heavenly perspective, these are demonic powers trying to stop the Messiah from coming. You understand what I mean? It's getting both perspectives you know, uh, throughout the scriptures. Oh, sorry. It says, uh, Now the salvation and power and uh, kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ have come. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. They overcame him because the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the land and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing he only has a short time, and when, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth or to the land, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And of course, there's. I, I want you to understand here, no Christians were killed in the Roman destruction of Jerusalem from 66 to 70 AD. But they were severely persecuted and tortured and killed prior to that by both the Jewish unbelievers. I mean, even in the book of Acts, you see uh, Stephen, the first martyr, being killed for the gospel. Well, that was Satan working through that. You understand? Uh, Satan worked behind the scenes to have Jesus crucified. And then we see later in 1 Corinthians, had the rulers and authorities had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory because that was our victory. And the devil didn't come to know it. Hallelujah. See, the devil didn't know why Jesus, why God became a man and came. Because even later on in Jesus' ministry, you know, there's some demons who manifest and they say, why have you come, Jesus? Son of God, we know who you are. They literally asked him, why have you come? See, they didn't understand, right? And so, anyways, uh, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And, and I think that's just, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Now look here very quickly as we wrap this up. He says the two kings of the the two wings, excuse me, of the great eagle were given to the woman so she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished. Here it is, and then we saw this in Daniel, time, times, half a time. For three and a half years. From the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children. He couldn't stop the gospel. So then, in the form of the destruction of Jerusalem for three and a half years, he goes to the rest of the children. 
Because what did it say back in verse 1, 2, and 3? It was, it was Israel that gave birth to the Messiah, the, the child who ruled the nations, who was caught up to God, all of that. But part of the children believed, the Christians, part of the children didn't believe, the unbelieving Jews. There was a remnant of believing, but most did not, right? And so we see he wanted to just stomp out the gospel and kill the Christians, and Nero in particular tried his best to, but he couldn't. All right? And then his life ended by his own hand, uh, nonetheless, in 68 AD. And so he was by far the strongest persecutor of the church of Christians from the Roman emperors, the Caesars. Uh, but he saw that he couldn't stomp out the gospel, and then they were, by the Lord's telling them, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, flee, and they did just that. But what did he do? He went to the rest of the children, the unbelieving Jews, uh, and killed over a million of them there. Dragon was enraged, went off to make war with the rest of the children. Uh, the King's commandments, God, Holy Testament, Jesus. Now, don't stop there. That's a lot for one day. <laughs> um, it's all good, but I, I've been I've been anticipating getting into these chapters eleven and after. Because I feel like, you know, as you know, that's when it just really starts to get good, you know. And so at least today we've got into some of that. We can see the three and a half years, the time of the great tribulation, time times, half time, 42 months, uh, however you want to, whatever phrase works best for you. We saw multiple places where that phrasing is years, used. And, um, and, you know, we see the two witnesses. And then you see in 11 and 12, you start seeing how uh, Satan tried to stomp out the Messiah. Upon his birth, he tried to stomp out the gospel as a whole through the Jewish people, through the Romans. Uh, but it's going to get good. We're going to, you know, get into the to the beast, the mark of the beast, uh, 666, uh, which in some old manuscripts was 616, and there's variations in the ancient in the book of Revelation, uh, and there's very simple logical reason for that. We'll get into some of those things, um, but again. Uh, hopefully we're seeing a lot here, and I'm, I'm quite certain we are. The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.